Let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 33, as we have been on an adventure through the book of Genesis. It's been awesome to learn all these things from the Lord, get this foundation. We're going to be through Genesis before you know it. <laughs> we only have like 20 chapters left, so... <laughs> we only have, it's like the whole story Joseph and this awesome oh, it's going to be great I'm excited about it today we're, we're talking about um, sincere love is not manipulation that's an interesting topic alright so it's, it's different than the line that we've been on a little bit that's a little bit topical but we're going to um, see we're going to kind of jump in so with your finger in Genesis would you turn with me uh, to Psalm chapter 2, the second psalm, and we're just going to read a, a couple verses from that psalm to start us, and then we'll refer back to this psalm a little bit later in the sermon, because uh, we're going to talk about kissing. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Norm's excited about that. <laughs> you all right with this, Mandy? All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just messy. Psalm 2. <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we come to you, Lord. We're so, so uh, broken and needy of you, God. We have uh, failed, Lord. We've, we've been selfish. Maybe we've just been disconnected, Lord, and, and we need that lifeblood of your Son, the very life of your Son, to flow in our hearts, Lord Jesus, Lord God. We worship you because you're so wonderful, you're holy. And, and by worshiping you, we, I know that we connect with you, God. We get your life flowing through us, a, a grace, a gift that just comes when we, when we connect ourselves to you, when we abide in you, when we trust in you. God, help us to, to sense that life even, to know that this is not just a, uh, empty church service, just a guy talking about some dead religion, but Lord, that this is the living God of the universe who has spoken to us your word and given us principles, Lord, that we can trust and we can believe in, and Lord God, that we can repent right now today of how we've lived our lives, of how we have thought about you. Lord, every single one of us, there's room for us to repent. There's an invitation for us to repent And Lord, I thank you that I can repent daily. Thank you for my kids that help me stay humble and realize that I I so need your spirit on a daily basis. Thank you for my wife who, who just blesses me and teaches me so much about you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for us as a church, God, that we would be the most humble church, that we would be the most broken and the most dependent upon you, Lord. We want to win that prize. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. He said, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. We're gonna, again, we're going to come back to this, but I want to 
plant this seed, you are supposed to kiss the son. Well, Jacob, he's, been, he's just serving the Lord now. As we, as we have been following his life, he was very rebellious. He came to know the Lord at a younger age, but he's lived 20 years of his own resources and his own ideas of what he was supposed to do with life, trying to work things out and get things better. He's been a master manipulator. That would be a great... In fact, his name was Jacob, which means deceiver, heel snatcher, or manipulator. Okay? He had a, his very name was Manipulation. That's all he, if if he wanted to get something out of life, his only plan was how he could figure that out. There was never a moment in his younger days where he just said, Lord, I, I want, I desire this, I need this, and so I simply trust you to give it to me. He never did that. But as he went through those 20 years and he had all this strife with his uncle Laban and then he got married and then he got tricked and then he got married again and then he had other, all kinds of women and children and heartbreak, he finally leaves that land. God calls him and says, you need to go to the promised land, to the life I have for you. You got to go. It's going to be dangerous, but you got to go. But in this land waiting for him was his brother Esau. Thank you, Jonathan. And Esau, as we've seen, is the manly man, the man who could do anything himself, the Sasquatch who gets angry sometimes. And he, he, he's very, he was very mad at Jacob when they left. In fact, he said, I'm going to kill you. If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to kill you. And Jacob didn't, wasn't a great fighter. So he left. He comes back 20 years later. God said, you've got to be there. And Jacob is like, okay. You know what, God, your plan is, is more important than mine. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you want and not what I want. But there was this big struggle with that. That didn't happen easily, right? Last week, we saw that Jacob wrestled with an angel or with a man who was actually who? Jesus, right? And Jacob learned how to lose a bar fight to Jesus. He learned how to, to fight with the Lord, and he got beat by the Lord, which was the intention of God. He's wrestling with him. Jacob is, is internal. He doesn't even know why he's struggling because he's got this desire to do what he wants and to manipulate the situation. And then he's got a desire also to honor God and to trust God. And he's got these two things inside him. He's very schizophrenic, you could say. But that's exactly where all of us are today. And that's the lesson we learned last week is that in our wrestling with God, it's a battle between our flesh and our desire to manipulate and work circumstances out for our benefit, and the Spirit, which says, no, I'm here to serve God, I'm here to love God, and I want to trust in God. These two are inside us right now. Half of you is saying, I wish he'd get on with it, finish his introduction, this is boring. And half of you is like, Lord, I trust you. Even if he's boring, I trust you that you can speak to me through this goofy guy. Just like that. Okay. But now Jacob lost that fight. The Lord touched his hip. He limps, and and Jacob said, you know what? I'm done fighting you, God. You win. I'll do what you want the way you want. He says, but I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. In other words, I'm just hanging on to you. I'm just hanging on, which is exactly what God wanted him to do the whole time. Hang on to me. I'm your father. I'm going to provide for you. Just hang on to me. And Jacob, he's in that place now, and Jesus says, all right, Last bridge, last thing we got to talk about. 
Are you going to be honest with me about who you are? What's your name? And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. I am a deceiver. I'm a manipulator. That's who I am inside. And Jesus said, not anymore. You are now Israel, governed by God, controlled by God. You'll do what God wants you to do now. You surrendered that old man to be with me. So now that fight is over. Jacob is limping, never going to be the same. And we get to chapter 33 of Genesis. And Jacob lifted his eyes and looked. And there Esau was coming. And there with him were 400 men. So we divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them. And he bowed himself to the ground seven times, and he came near to his brother. So Jacob here, he, he, he puts his family in order, and then he crosses over this little brook, and he approaches his brother. He doesn't take his army. He doesn't take his servants. He doesn't take the gifts at this point. He just comes before his brother, and he bows down. Jacob is right now broken and submissive to God. And his actions are these, are, these are the words that you could describe his actions by, real, genuine, truthful, and humble. That old manipulative Jacob is not seen right here. He doesn't do anything. He crosses over with nothing, no threat at all, to his brother Esau, who in his mind is coming with 400 men to kill him. And Jacob here shows incredible faith and surrender to God, submission to God, saying, I can't fix the situation, God, but you've asked me to go into this land, so I'm going to go. No matter what I see in front of me, no matter what the circumstances are, I am broken by you. And he doesn't pretend that he was better than he was. He doesn't pretend that he's got some deal. He's not, he's not coming to Esau saying, you better be careful of me. No, he's saying, Esau, you can, you can kill me if you would like. But I'm here. When someone actually truly trusts in the Lord, there is no pretense in their relationships with other people. They are not trying to get anything. In other words, there's not manipulation. It's just sincere love. Just sincere love. We're going to go on a little rabbit trail on this subject, so get ready. All right, we're going to bring it back to Genesis, but we're going to go on a little rabbit trail, right? We're going to talk about sincere love, and we're going to talk about something that the people in the church hate and people outside the church hate. What's the biggest thing you hear? The number one complaint about the church is hypocrisy. Exactly. When we see a church that's hypocritical, what's our attitude? Oh, what is this church doing? They're talking about Jesus, but they're not humble. You know, they're, they're, uh, you know, the biggest example you have is that Westboro Baptist Church, right? That they pick it out there saying God hates and all this and you should die and you're going to go to hell. It's like we see that and our, our hearts ache and they break because of that because it's horrible hypocrisy. That is not right. 
Well, the people outside the church do the same thing. They don't like us sometimes when they feel that we are being hypocritical or not sincere. Well, how can we be a true Christian? If you think in your mind about those true Christians that you have met, maybe it was your mom or your grandma, maybe people in this church even that you're like, that's a true believer. What are the attributes? How did they become truly loving and truly spiritual without faking it? I mean, I really don't think they're faking it. You're thinking in your mind, and I don't think my mom was faking it. I watched her for all these years, and I don't think she was faking it. I think she was real. That's who she really was inside, truly loving. How does a person become like that? Without pretending, without just imitating what we know to be good and true, but actually be good and true from the inside. How does that take place? How does that happen? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Now, the truth here isn't a list of rules. The truth Peter is referencing is the gospel. He's saying, since you believe your gospel, the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and he loves you, since you believe that, your souls are now pure. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth or the gospel, through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That's what Peter says is your job after you believe the gospel. Love one another with a pure heart, with sincerity, through the Spirit. There's a lot of clues right there. So he says, since, this is after you believe the gospel. In other words, the church is not about a bunch of people coming together to love one another. That's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to come together so we believe the gospel. And after we believe the gospel, a change happens in us where we become loving to one another, sincerely loving. When you believe that Jesus is everything you need and that he's your very life living in your heart, then you are given his spirit, right? When you ask for the Holy Spirit, he gives you his spirit. And this is a spirit of sincere love, Peter says. The opposite of sincere love is manipulation. Trying to get someone to change for your benefit. An example. Someone living in sin comes to church. Manipulation would say, we're going to try to get them to change by telling them what they're involved with is sinful and wrong. But really in our hearts, we just want them to stop being icky. We're just, we just want them to change because we just need them to change because it's messing up our groove going on here. And that's manipulation. They are just a roadblock on the way to a comfortable life. People struggling with sin where love would be exhorting them to follow Jesus and learn about his love and being patient enough to walk with them through the process of falling and repentance. So in other words, we don't say, you need to change your life. But we say, let me walk with you through this process of repenting, coming back to Jesus. And when they fail again, we don't say, oh, really, again, 
Last week I prayed with you about repenting about this. You have a habitual life of sin. No, we walk with them patiently through this process of repenting again and again and again. And what does that do? It will produce a fruit. But you have to be patient. A gardener doesn't freak out when his tomato plant doesn't produce fruit right away. He prunes it. He cares for it. He sings it a song. He helps it through this process. See, because the people, instead of them being a roadblock on your way to a happy, comfortable church life, they are so important that you pour yourself out for them. And that is your church life, is pouring yourself out for the people around you sincerely. Not demanding that they change, but walking them to Jesus to allow him to change them. One has patience, kindness, long-suffering, humility. Those are the words you would describe truly spiritual living. And it achieves, it achieves change through the Spirit. God's working in our hearts. Like Jacob has surrendered to God, and God has changed his very heart. He now looks at the world and all the people in his life, and Jacob now loves them. Jacob with Esau before, Jacob was horrible to Esau. He hated him, and he showed it with his actions, deceiving him, tricking him. But now Jacob cares about Esau enough to put himself in harm's way to say, hey, I'm here for you, Esau. And the other, the fleshly way to do this, the uh, manipulation way, is, could be described as impatient, mean, annoyed, and prideful. If that's your heart towards believers when they fail or unbelievers, then what you have inside you is still a heart of manipulation. You desire to manipulate them to changing. A lot of um, legalistic churches look changed on the outside. They look even righteous and holy, but it's all a show. Because on the inside, they still desire the sin. They've just covered it up with all these outward-looking robes, good-looking robes. Uh, because manipulation only achieved, uh, achieves change through the flesh. So love wants to achieve change by the Spirit, and manipulation wants to achieve change by the flesh. Our efforts, what we can do. Now, some will say then that the church does not need to worry about what's going, in the what's going on in the lives of people. And that's also not true. We're to be very involved. Take notice. But some people say, hey, the attitude of some churches is, hey, let's just get bigger and that will fix all our problems. Just get more people to come to church. And it kind of covers up everyone's problems. And they, they all turn into just this big mass of humanity. And we forget so easily the individual problems and the individual people in their lives. Oh, it doesn't matter what's going on in their life. Just get everyone to come. In other words, we're not going to be mean and demand that they change through the flesh. We're just going to not address anything and give everyone the idea that they're fine, we're fine, we're all just in a big club because we showed up. 
and we don't really care if you change. And that also is flesh. So you can't be on this side where you're super legalistic and sell everyone, you got to change, got to change, got to change, because you're manipulating them into that change. And you can't be on this side saying, well, I don't care if you change, just come to church and go smoke your weed and do your stuff and whatever you want. This is Denver. We can't be on either side. There's a middle ground that actually achieves righteousness, and what is that? The Holy Spirit. Living by the Spirit, living by truly, sincerely love. I'm not saying it's impossible in a big church. I've seen great big churches. But that can be the challenge of a large church. This is what happened in Corinth. In the church in Corinth, they were bragging about how they were so seeker-friendly that they let sexually immoral people be a big part of the church and they didn't need to repent. They were, they were excited about it. They're like, look how awesome we are. We include everybody. Uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and see what Paul has to say about this time in the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 6. Again, they were bragging about being so seeker-friendly And Paul's going to tell them, you guys aren't being sincere, sincerely loving, okay? They're still trusting in their flesh. He says, verse 6, chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So when you're making bread, you put this stuff called leaven inside it, and that makes the bread poof up. And you only need to put a tiny little bit of leaven in it, and it makes the whole bread poof up. So Paul's saying here, leaven is a picture of sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So he's going on this trip with the, with the Passover, with the bread. He says, you are truly unleavened. You've, you're a church, which means you are pure in God's sight. So he's saying, Live that way. Be pure. And he says, uh, for Christ, our, our Passover was sacrificed for us. That's how we became truly unleavened, is what he's saying. So he's taking this bread analogy pretty far. Verse 8, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the, leaven of unleavened, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's saying, let us keep this feast. Not that us loving one another saves us. That's not what he's saying. But we're going to keep the feast. In other words, we're going to remember that unleavened bread. We're going to remember what Jesus did for us. And we're going to keep that in our heart. And what it will be is this sincerity and truth will be created in our hearts as we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. As we keep that in our mind, it will keep us sincere and truth. There's two parts to it. Not sincere and like, not just being honest and sincerely loving people, but with the truth. Okay, verse 9. I, write, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetousness or covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written 
to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or an extorturer, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul says here there was a, a major problem with someone being able to come to church and live in sin and not repent. And it's the loving thing to do to kick them out. <gasps> what? What? Because love is pure, sincere, and truthful. And the church is supposed to be pure, sincere, and truthful. When somebody has a habitual sin or lifestyle that is clearly against what honors God, i.e., he gives some examples here, sexual immorality that they just live in, covetousness, are we keeping our eye on that with each other? Um, idolatry, idolater, someone who cares about something more than God, a reviler, someone who just parties all the time, a drunkard, we know what that is, or an extortioner, like manipulating people, purity. It, that's, you know, that kind of, I'm going to interpret these a little bit just to get them in our minds. Purity, money hungry, idolatry, we're obsessed with things, uh, partiers, out of control partiers, alcoholism, or any substance abuse, manipulators. If someone's okay with these things being in their life and showing up at church on Sunday, Paul says there must be a division there that when it's a habitual lifestyle sin, that that doesn't equal being okay in church. They can't be part of a church that honors God because the church that honors God has purity. They need to know that there must be repentance. And what does the word repentance mean? Agreeing with God. You got to say, you know what, God? At, they have to at least say, I'm wrong in doing these things. Now again, we're going to patiently walk through them through the repentance over and over and over again until the Spirit does the work in their life. But if they don't even admit that it's wrong, God says it's not pure, that the Holy Spirit isn't working there. Okay? So now, check this out. In humility, when they repent, they, they in humility say, I'm not right. I need God to change me. Then they come to church and seek God's grace to change them. That's how the church works. That's what the story of every single one of us is supposed to be. Is we've admitted that we can't change ourselves. We've admitted that we're either too much into our rules or we don't keep any rules at all. We have our flesh. And we need the Spirit. And so we seek the Spirit, we come to church, we ask for God's grace to change us. The church is not full of perfect people. But the church is all a bunch of people who agree that they're not perfect and they need God to change them. And this agreement or repentance that is group-wide is how the power of God's grace flows into us corporately and personally. You want God to work in your life personally? Repent. You want, we want God to work through us corporately? Then we need to be a people that's just always repenting. 
always staying right with the Lord. But when they will not pridefully, when they pridefully ignore their sin, they uh, openly, uh, sorry, sorry. What we do as people right with the Lord is we don't pridefully ignore our sin. We openly confess our sins, repenting all the time, saying, I really mess up. I really messed up. I'm sure that we can all think of a church that's prideful and hypocritical, right? They always have a problem admitting their problems and sin. They just they struggle with that. Well, if I admit that I have a problem with that, then what's going to happen to my status, my reputation? And that's a lack of humility, all right? So the person who says, I don't need to change, and then comes to church and doesn't ask for God's power to change them is not part of the real invisible church that's here. The invisible club, you could call it, of holy people made right by the blood of the Son of God. That's what this club is. There's a really great sermon by C.S. Lewis called Membership, and I highly recommend it, but it's really hard to understand because he's like way smarter and he uses big words. Good luck. Trust me, I've listened to it like five times. I still only get about like every second sentence. And it's, but it's amazing. It's about that, the, the secret membership. Anyway, it's cool. Um, they have, now, the people who are coming to church and don't ask for God's grace, they have chosen to not be a part. It was their choice. Get this. And the church then has a responsibility to confront and possibly remove them from fellowship. After patiently exhorting them in sincere love themselves, considering themselves, lest they be tempted in the same way. But then we come along, we bring them 1 John 1, 9, which is the Christian's what? Bar soap, exactly. We bring them that verse. But look at what the, the verse before it says and verse 9. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. How much more clear could that be? Come to church and say, I'm a sinner. Even if you can't think of what sins, just, I probably screwed up so bad this week, and I'm so dense that I didn't, don't even realize it. Lord, search my heart. Lord, search my heart. If we confess our sins, verse 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the job of the church. Confess your sins every week. Not to the priest. To God himself, Right? We have one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus, Hebrews says. Because the real church is all about sincere love, sincere love, love for each other and love for God. So we can't just be a church that's like, we're a church of love, so everyone come in, bring your sin, let's go, you know, we love everybody. No, that's not love. That's not love. It's manipulation. It's bringing people into our church saying, you're okay, and they're not okay. No, we want to truly make disciples, make people who are right on with Jesus. And that involves confront, confrontation, repentance, and the Holy Spirit. Because we are all about sincere love. Love for men and love for God. Is it loving for God to say, you're right with God, and they're not right with God, and they die and go to hell because you didn't warn them? No, God's like, what are you doing? They could have repented. You could have been a part of that process. God is not loved when his word is ignored. 
And people just sit like they don't care in church because they don't care. Because their pride is keeping them from humbling themselves and confessing their sin. They don't love God more than they love their sin or their status. Either side, right? If you're, if you're in the side of just living however you want to live and accepting your sin, then you love your sin more than you love God. If you're in the side where you're really legalistic, then you love your status more than you love God. And you're unwilling to confess your sins. So the church, the most loving thing for us as a church to do is to remove them from the church. To help them realize that there's a problem and to protect them from what? Dying. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. The church has a responsibility to sincerely love everyone. Those who are right with God, we're supposed to love them. Those who are not right with God, we're supposed to lovingly warn them. Because Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't love God. They were faking it. And they went to church, and it was very dangerous for them. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And they kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and bought a certain part, uh, brought a per- certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. No sincerity with God there. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Then it was about three hours later that his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So she, she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead, and carried her out and buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So we got some young men here. You guys ready in case someone dies? You can bury him in the backyard over here. All right. He's like, okay, we can do it. Church can be a dangerous place. Church is a dangerous place. Life and death are decided within these walls. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You can't fake it with God. Listen, you can't fake it with God. Listen, you can't fake it with God. And if that, those words, you can't fake it with God, those six words, if those cause any 
worry or concern in your heart, then you've got to repent of whatever you're hiding. Bring it out to the Lord and say, God, I have been faking it. Because God will take you down. He does not take faking very well. Because he sees everything. Everything, the Bible says, everything is naked and open. All those things that you're ashamed about, completely open before God. He knows about every single one. His spirit searches all things. So his Holy Spirit is inside searching right now every little crooked crevice of your heart to bring everything out. And when we don't, when we sit there silently and say, I'm all right, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. If I just ignore this, it'll go away. If I just ignore this feeling of conviction, it'll go away. And I can just go up there and I can eat the bread and drink the juice, I'll be fine. And the Holy Spirit is inside saying, no, that's the recipe for death. You want to die? Do that. If you come to church, you're inviting God to deal with you. If you don't want God to deal with you, don't come. That's what communion, he even talks about communion. Paul says many people die because they come and take communion and they're keeping stuff back from the Lord. God is serious about communion. He's serious about church. He says, if you want to hide stuff from me, don't come to church because you might die if you go there. And it was right for them to be afraid. If this is making you afraid, good. That's what it's supposed to do. God wants you to be afraid to be fake. He wants every example in the Bible of fake people to be people who died and were not fruitful in their life and in their ministry. Sincerity is what it's all about. He wants us to cling to him like Jacob learned to do last week and to rely upon his help like Jacob is doing this week. Jacob is just bowing in front of Esau, nothing in his hands. He's just bowing there. And if we don't do those two things, we can't really be a part of his family. It's not safe to be here in the family meeting. And rather than let these people who are faking it just be destroyed by uh, a fake relationship with God, we should make sure that they know that they're not right with God. If it somehow comes into our mind what's truly going on in their heart, we need to encourage them to repent. Not to fix themselves, but to repent Not to change themselves, but to believe in Jesus and repent. That means just confess everything. Get it all out there so that Jesus can start working. You can be sincere. You can be right with God. You can be part of his family and his body here on earth. Just believe the gospel and repent continually. Confessing your sin to the Lord and your need for Jesus and you are made right in his sight, by faith. Okay, that's the end of the rabbit trail. (laughs) That was all just sincerity and not to be a hypocrite. So Jacob, now we get back to Genesis chapter 33. Jacob is now sincere. He is not hypocritical. And that's the big change that's gone on in Jacob's life. He's living up to his new name of Israel. He just wants to please God and to trust God now. And we can see this through his humble bowing and lack of fleshly efforts. He stopped trying 
And maybe you have a marriage that's in trouble. Maybe you have relationships that are bummed out. Maybe your work is just so, ah. God a lot of times wants you to stop trying with all your fleshly efforts and start trusting him in it. To say, I can't do anything to change this, God. So I'm going to be loving and sincere where I'm at. So this is probably, you know, how your life will look as well. Esau's coming with 400 men. The circumstances look impossible. And you humbly accept your circumstances. Oh, it's not fair that she left. It's not fair that he did that. Humbly say, what can I do? Except trust the Lord. Except be here right now and worship Jesus. And then you have rest from thinking that you have to fix all these circumstances. See, when you humbly accept your circumstances, you stop trying to change them. You just say, I don't have to change them. I I have rest now. I have rest. Things aren't any better. In fact, they may get worse. But I have rest from thinking that it's up to me to change them. Our circumstances are never in our control. And forgive us when we think that they are, because they're not. So God, he blesses Jacob right now by changing Esau's heart. Let's look in verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And that's weird for us guys in America. We don't go around kissing each other, right? We shouldn't. But back in that culture, it was, it was a, a, a humble, sincere greeting. You ever got a not sincere kiss? Maybe your wife was mad at you. Like, Give me a kiss, baby. And she's like, Mwah. you tell because the lips go in and not out. You know, a pucker, a real good pucker is a nice kiss. Nice. Just remember that. I can tell when they're insincere. Well, here they have a sincere kiss. It says they even wept at the end of verse 4. They kissed and then wept. Now, this is crazy, okay? This is crazy. Remember the first verse that we read. Kiss the son lest he be angry. You can't fake a kiss. All right? We're going to come right back to that. And he lifted his eyes and saw the woman and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Wow, Jacob's attitude is so different. He used to be like, This is what I did and look what I got. And now he's like, Man, God just blessed me. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Wow, it's amazing how your family starts taking after your attitude when you humbly trust in the Lord. It's why we disciple the men at church here. You know, it's great for women to be discipled, but we really focus on discipling men because your families follow you so clearly. That's in the Bible. Right here, they followed him. Verse 7, And Leah came near with her children and bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. God had been working in Esau's heart this whole time that he had also been working in Jacob's heart. 
And both of them had forgiven each other. It's a work of God. It's amazing how God comes through for you when you humbly put your trust in him. But when you want to get your way before the forgiveness, God's not going to bless that. Reconciliation comes in our relationships when we take responsibility for ourselves and we ask forgiveness for our stuff. And we let God work on them. That's surrender to the Lord. In our relationships, that's the only way they can be right is when we do what we're supposed to do and we put the rest in God's hands. Psalm chapter 2, again, I'm going to read this again because it's where we're going now. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What about my circumstances? Well, if your circumstances are tough, serve the Lord in fear and rejoice with trembling. Maybe all you can do is tremble. Maybe your life is beating you down so bad, you're in jail, you're this, that, or the other. Life is terrible, and it's filled with trembling, but rejoice anyway. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And, oh, uh, blah, blah, blah. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. The sincereness, the sincereness that we've been talking about, we're, we're making the application now that it's us and Jesus that it's really about. Are you really kissing the son or are you faking it? I want you to think very carefully about this. Judas, what did he do to betray Jesus? He kissed him. Now, in the Greek, it's very, very important to understand the Greek word that's used. There's two Greek words for kiss. One is a peck and one is a passionate kiss between lovers. And the Greek says in Matthew that Judas passionately kissed Jesus. Now, apart from being icky, it's so clear that Judas was trying to make up for his sincerity by going over the top with the kiss. He tried to make it look good. Why, Judas? You're in the process of betraying him. Why do you care? Because he maybe had read this. He's like, Jesus, I don't want you to be mad at me, but I'm going to betray you because I want to manipulate you into doing something that I want because he was fake. He didn't trust Jesus. Why does it say blessed are those who trust in the Lord in Psalm chapter 2? Because if you don't trust him, you're trying to manipulate him by overcompensating your love for him. You ever met someone who at church is just like, Jesus! And they go home and they're like a jerk? I think that's what this is. <laughs> I see wives giving their husbands a look like, yeah, that's you sometimes. <laughs> Not pointing out anybody. It's just funny. See, Judas was fake. He did not trust in Jesus. He was trying to manipulate him to defeat Rome. Judas had this ulterior motive. He, wanted, he was a zealot, which means he was incredibly passionate about taking down the Roman Empire. So Judas sees Jesus come along, and he's like, I know Jesus is powerful. I know he's the Messiah. I know he's God. He's God. And so he could get rid of Rome for us, and that's the most important thing in my heart is having a comfortable life without other people telling me what to do. 
And so he says, I, if, I, if, I, if I get Jesus to get arrested, I know Jesus can't be beaten. And so somehow he's going to get out of it and, and I'm going to have this, I'm going to get what I want out of the deal, which is Rome kicked out of Israel. But he was not listening to the word of God, which said Jesus had to be killed, had to be crucified, and he unknowingly became part of betraying the Lord. Judas is a picture of untrusting manipulation that we do sometimes. We're like, well, I could get Jesus to fix my marriage if I'm overly to the top in love with Jesus. That doesn't fix anything. And honestly, I get kind of suspicious when I meet someone who's just like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Because I'm like, are you, are you sincere about that? Or is this that weird kiss that Judas gave to Jesus? Are you kissing the son lest he be angry? And, or, but are you trusting, are you putting your trust in him? I get suspicious. But sometimes I meet someone like Avant, who loves Jesus with all his heart, and he totally puts his trust in the Lord, right? I love using him as, a, as, a, as an illustration because we all know him, and he's old and black and awesome. So, <laughs> I hope he hears that. You going to put that on the radio? All right. <laughs> I love him. You know, love it. All sincerity, right? You know, I, I want to be like Avant when I grow up. Go to the tanning booth all the time. It's not happening, though. I'm just kidding, but I can be sincere with the Lord. That comes by humbly confessing your sin. You know how many times, just to totally brag on Avant, you know how many times he has confessed sin to me? Over and over and over again. He just wants to be clean with the Lord. He loves being in that place where he's got nothing to hide. This is, um, just love Jesus so much. I need him so much. Boom. That's what we need right there. Not fake. All right? Oh, we're, we're going way too far. Okay. Let's, verse 8. Oh, by the way, it didn't end well for Judas either. <laughs> you know, Ananias and Sapphira, theirs ended bad. Judas ended bad. Everyone who fakes it with Jesus, it ends bad. So if you're faking it with Jesus, repent, please, today. I hope I make my case. Verse 8. Then Esau said, Who do you mean by all this company? What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Then Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please. If, if I now have found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God. And you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me because I have enough. Then he urged him and took it. Back then to accept a gift was to accept the friendship than the reconciliation. And so Jacob is more concerned with the friendship and relationship than all of his stuff. And this, again, is another picture of sincere love. Jacob is not trying to manipulate Esau. They're already restored. But Jacob's like, I want to give you a present, dude. I'm excited about this. Can we continue this awesome relationship? He says, like, all right. 
Sincere love can only be done by faith, by trusting in God, making it right with your enemy or friend or wife for the sake of honoring God. Jacob's like, God's been so good to me. I'm, doing, I'm giving you a gift to honor God because I know it'll make God happy. Not because they deserve it, but just to honor God. Marriages, pay attention. Husbands, love and understand your wife to honor God. Not because they deserve it. Wives, submit to your husbands and love them to honor God. Not because they deserve it. This is how you can care more about honoring God in your relationships than about getting blessings out of it. A lot of people are like, my marriage just has no joy. Well, if that's what you're looking to get out of it, you're not going to find it. Joy is a blessing that comes from God alone. So are you honoring God by understanding everything about your wife right now or respecting and honoring your husband? No? Well, then I'm gonna, I, that's why you're not happy. Do you want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or do you want to hear, wow, your life was happy and easy, wasn't it? Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go. I'll go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. If, um, and if the men should drive them hard in one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant, and I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come, in, come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, uh, Now let me leave you with some of my people that are with me. But he said, uh, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth. And he built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of his place is called Succoth, which means booths. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, and in the land of Canaan, uh, when he came to, from Padanaram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he brought the parcel of land. He bought the parcel of land uh, where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And he erected an altar there and called it El. Elohe Israel. So J Jacob is now living in the land and that God is giving him. And look at what's going on. He's building a house. He's building booths or barns. He started a business. He's buying land. He's building altars like a church, a place for worship. God is giving him safety. See, when you trust in the Lord, he watches out for you. And the safest place to be is always in his will. Even though it seemed like a dangerous thing to go to the promised land where his Sasquatch brother wanted to kill him, and there's all these crazy Philistines living there, the safest place really to be is where the Lord wants you. As we review Jacob's journey, he's come a very long way from trusting in himself to trusting in God. From safely living with his uncle Laban, who was dangerous, to safely living in the land of promise with his uncle, with, the, with his uh, brother, who was also dangerous. From being healthy and strong to being limpy and weak. From being estranged from his family to being reunited with his family. Our lives can seem long and maybe even boring at times. But if we're walking with the Lord, he's continually changing us. We can't get impatient. He isn't in a hurry. He isn't on a schedule like a factory trying to produce 
Christian after Christian after Christian. No, he is much more of a gardener, carefully tending his plants, pruning us when we need pruning, and carefully producing fruit in the right time. Our only responsibility is to abide, to remain close to him, and watch that fruit of righteousness uh, get cultivated by believing his promises in our life. That's what we're, where we're at. Believe the gospel. Repent of your sin. Give thanks. And you will see or see sincere love flowing out of your life too, like we see in Jacob's life here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the love that um, we don't deserve, God, for giving us this story of Jacob and his real change, his real, real sincerity, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that as we, as we sing these couple songs, Lord, that there would be no fakeness in us, in this church, Lord. We would confess where we have not been trusting in you. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at home when we're by ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us to just openly confess our sin so that we're not fake. I pray that we're not coming in here laying things at the disciples' feet or the apostles' feet. Lord, put, trying to put on this show that we're better than we are. But Lord, just that we have failed and we are sinners and we desperately need a Savior and that's what makes us Christians and that's what makes us part of the church is we believe that you're the Savior, Jesus. And we can't save ourselves. And as we take communion, Lord, I pray that we would do that really believing in what you did with your body on the cross being broken for us as we eat the bread and remember your body, remember the sacrifice that you gave I pray we would believe it with all our heart. And with the, with the juice that represents your blood being poured out, your very life now can be poured out into us and into our hearts. Lord, we drink that in. Let it be real with us, Lord God. Keep us from being fake in any way. In your name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.